we really have to have a serious paradigm shift. We have see as a stumbling block from the mindset of us as women ourselves and stop putting ourselves behind and not speaking our mind. Hi, I'm Laura Cornish, Editor-in-Chief of Mining Review Africa, and welcome to our special Women of Impact podcast series. In honor of Women's Month, we pay homage to the women in mining who are making great strides in the African mining sector. In today's podcast episode, we chat to two of Ivanhoe Mine's leading ladies, President and Chief Financial Officer Marna Kluta and Executive Vice President for Sustainability and Special Projects, Dr. Patricia Makesha who is also the executive chairperson for Ivanhoe's 64% owned South African subsidiary, Ivanplatz. Let's join the discussion with senior deputy editor, Chantal Kotza, who chats to Marna and Patricia about how they are using their leadership positions to drive female representation in the historically male-dominated mining industry. Patricia, thank you for joining us on the Deep Insights podcast. I'd like to start today's discussion by understanding where exactly South Africa stands in terms of female representation in the mining sector. According to the Women in Mining White Paper, released by the Minerals Council South Africa in March this year, women accounted for only 12% of the mining industry. Based on this statistic, do you believe the industry is doing enough to attract and retain women at all levels in the workplace? Or what are your suggestions to the industry to improve this? Thank you very much for that question. I think it's a very fundamental question to ask. However, I think it's important for us to remember that when we look at where we are today, we need to take cognizance of where we come from as an industry. If we were to look at 20 years back, will you have seen a woman president in mining except for Cynthia Carroll? I don't think so. So now you have the Magna Clutia of this world as the president of a Canadian listed company. You have other more women in senior positions. Not only that, even in mining, mining engineering itself. You know, it brings the story of one day when I ask, but why don't we have most women in mining and forestry? I remember somebody saying to me, you know, if you look at the forestry, it's also part of mining. It's like your mining tree. And if we have women foresters, pet, if they need to go to the loo, where will they go? Because the gents can just stand there. I looked at that guy and I said, you know what? What you've just said gives me hope that we really need to have women to show you that we can actually be equal and be on equal ground and do whatever you need to do. And this brings me to another story of me and Mark now when I first joined Ivan Mines. We went to the community meeting and it was a white tent meeting and it was a group of us, both men and women. And I said to Marna, I was a consultant then in mining. So uh, where do we go to the loo here? And Marna said, look around you. Uh, the bush is where we are. So it means as women, we can identify that we need to uplift life and we need to do value add. And if I can tell you that if we were to go where we were in that white tent, we now actually have uh, facilities that we, in terms of our social and labor plan, were able to put together and say, uh, we want to change lives. We want to have impact to us sanitation is dignity. But 
Do you think that a man could have thought the same way or a man that just stood there and said, okay, I can still help myself from this bush, so there's no point. So I think women come with another element of value-add. And this brings me to the history of when I was growing up, my grandmother used to say to me, you know, if you give a guy 10 bucks and you give a woman 10 bucks, they'll bring different perspectives to it all together. And I said, how so? He said, well, a woman will go, and buy a pack of meat from the butchery and come home and cook it and share it with the whole family. Whereas guy who is used to go to the restaurant, get his own meal and something to drink with, and then that's it, you know. But I'm not generalizing. I'm not saying all men are like that. I'm just saying we are wired up in a different way, so we react differently to different situations. So to come back to the question, are we changing? Of course we are changing. I don't believe change happens overnight. I always look at Lewin's model, you know. You cannot take the eyes out of the freezer and it's frozen and you think you're going to beat it up with a hammer and it's going to maintain the same shape. The best way to do it, you take it out, let it defrost overnight, then it gets into a liquid form, then you put it in a new container. So it's a process. It's not a quick fix. It doesn't happen overnight. So I do strongly believe that, yes, change is there. We can actually see that change is visible and we can still do more. And it's a journey. It continues. Patricia, as you so rightly mentioned, change is a journey that the mining industry has already successfully embarked on. But where do you hope to see the mining sector heading in the next 12 months in terms of female representation? I think most of the mining uh, houses, if you look at their transformation charters that they submit to the DMRE every year, you see hope. I was doing an analysis when I knew that we were going to talk about that, to see uh, how are people moving in terms of increasing their goalposts and the milestone and what are they achieving and how far are they. And I was very encouraged because there's that gradual movement happening. I think we are likely to move from 12% to 15% in the next 12 months because we are looking at students that are graduating that are going to get into the system. However, with COVID-19 happening, with the economic challenges, I'm not so sure if we are still going to achieve that milestone that we have set for ourselves. Because the Women in Mining chapter also said, as much as we really want to see women there, but we also need to create a conducive environment for them to be able to function, you know? And creating a conducive environment meaning making the economy to work. So it's not just a gender issue, it's also a question of the platforms that we are creating to be able to enhance it. If now universities are not actually functioning properly because of COVID-19, and we are expecting the graduates to also join the workforce, and the workforce is having a challenge in terms of the economic climate, all those external factors have influence in terms of women progressing and women joining certain industries across the board, be it mining, be it manufacturing. I think we, we need to look at this holistically and not only say this are women target. We also need to think about women, uh, people living with disability. We also need to think about youth development. So it's a whole package that needs to be a balanced society kind of a thing. 
So the moment you look at only one angle and you forget about other angles, you forget about the population of youth that are unemployed, irrespective of whether they are boys or girls. So we need to create a balanced community, a balanced society, where it won't be a question of you focus on one issue and you neglect the other. I'll make a practical example. You know, I've seen that particularly in my generation, and I don't mean to be stereotyped, but when I was growing up, a, a divorce was a very foreign word in terms of the African culture. But now lately it seems to be a trendy thing to happen. And I've been asking myself when I have discussions with other professionals, what is actually happening, particularly from the male counterpart, you know. And I will get an answer to say, you know, yes, uh, I married my African lady and we had a wonderful life. But as a man, I felt inferior when she started progressing more than me, and I felt neglected by our own laws that we have in the country. So we need to maintain a balance somehow that we don't neglect one gender at the expense of another gender, just like we were neglected as women. I don't think we want to raise boys who will feel like uh, they are not really being considered as equal to the girls that we are raising. So as much as we have take a girl to school, I'm of the view that we must also somehow have a way of enhancing the manhood. Because if you build a strong generation of both men and women, then you have a better society that is balanced. And that is the view that I hold. I want to go back to one of the stories that you told us at the start of our discussion about some of the unique challenges that you faced as women in the industry. On this note, can you unpack some of the on-the-job challenges that are still being faced by women today and how you believe these can be overcome? Definitely. I think most of us as women, we tend to think, oh, I'm a woman, and it comes with that mindset of, uh, I might be viewed as inferior. I think, you know, sometimes we become our worst enemies in a way. I think if we can all get over that dilemma of uh, my gender is of the inferior view and actually speak our minds, and to some extent, this comes from home as well, you know. Uh, you can have Patricia in the boardroom and you can have Patricia in the household. When Patricia gets into the household, there's a certain perception that is created by society that you are a woman in this household and therefore, we look up to you to prepare breakfast for us, or we look up to you to make sure that the household is kept in a certain way, that order is clean, when everybody wants something, they look at mommy, they don't say, daddy, where's this? They say, mommy, where's this? You know? So that, that mentality and that culture and that stigma comes from one generation to another. And when you get into the work environment, I think women, by nature of being motherly, they then take a space where they say, oh, we're going to mother everybody in the workforce, not taking into consideration that there you are, you are, you are peers and you are on equal footing. And whatever the task is there, it cannot be a question of you deciding to stand up in the boardroom and say, okay, my role will be to take minutes for everybody. When 12 of you are there and there are guys who can also take the minutes, or automatically stand up and say, oh, so-and-so, can I make you a cup of coffee? No, everybody can make themselves a cup of coffee. Hello? Rather add value in terms of what is on the table here, what is being discussed. So I think we really have to have a serious paradigm shift, which I see as a stumbling block 
from the mindset of us as women ourselves and stop putting ourselves behind and not speaking our mind, you know. If you feel you disagree with something, and most importantly, standing up for each other, you know. If you see there's a man who's saying something that you don't like about your fellow sister, you have to be able to say, no, I don't believe that this is the issue. And it doesn't matter whether it's another female or another male, you know. If something is wrong, pick up your mind and don't hold back. Don't feel like, oh, I'm a woman and therefore how will I be perceived? You are a colleague, you are an executive, or you are a manager, or you are a junior or middle manager, speak your mind. Learn to say exactly how you feel. Don't assume that people will uh, sense it if you don't sleep, you know. You have to verbalize your feelings. And I find that that is mainly the stumbling block in most women. They keep quiet, they become like, uh, make peace with things that they're not supposed to be making peace with. And then they blame the system to say, but I'm a woman and they're not being treating me fair, whereas they didn't verbalize their unhappiness at that particular time when something was happening. So I think if people can learn to really talk about their issues openly, you might find that they're not even issues at all. You might find that somebody says, oh, I'm sorry, but it was not because I was saying this because you're a woman. I was just saying this because I was going to say it to anybody in any case, but because maybe we are not good in terms of really explaining how we want to be treated and how we feel, then it becomes an issue because we never spoke about it. And again, I said we cannot separate Patricia at home and Patricia at work. There needs to be a consistent kind of approach. Whether you're at home or whether you're at work, be yourself, be who you are. So the moment you bring that element of submissiveness to work, then it really reflects on the people that you work with and they will treat you. How people treat you is how you want them to treat you. You teach people how to treat you. And that's my same belief. Thank you. Thanks so much, Patricia. We will continue our conversation with Mana and Patricia after this short message. It will never be the same. The new normal is business unusual. At Mining Review Africa, we want to partner with you to ensure that your brand is still visible in these unprecedented times. That's why we're offering you a bouquet of digital marketing choices to ensure that your company is still top of mind with your clients. This includes podcasts, partner profiles, videos, and webinars. Want to know more? Click on the Engage tab on miningreview.com today to find out how we can give you more bang for your digital buck. Welcome back to our exclusive Women of Impact podcast with Mana Klutzi and Patricia Makesha of Avano Minds. Mana, I'd like to bring you into the discussion at this point. Patricia earlier introduced you as an exemplary female in a leadership role. So on the back of that, can you tell us more about your career in the mining industry and how it all began? You've no doubt had many achievements along the way, which we would also like to hear some more about. Okay, sure, Chantal. I mean, it, uh, uh, success is a, is a matter of perception, but um, my story started by chance. Um, I started out at PwC doing my audit articles, and when you join the firm, you have to tick a box to say which industry you would like to go into. And um, there were some uh, exciting industries you could choose from, entertainment, hotels, cell phones. So... Um, 
I added all of those as my first choices, and then my third choice was mining, because I always liked being a little bit alternative and off the beaten track. And obviously, as a woman back then in 2000, uh, 2001, if you, if you put mining on the slate, and I have to fill the quota to try and get enough girls and boys onto the team, um, mining's going to be where you end up, because there's not a lot of girls that would put mining on, on the slate. Um, so I started there, never looked back. Um, it's been quite an exciting journey. I've dabbled a little bit in construction after my articles and my, my career at PwC, but went back to mining in 2006 when I joined Ivano Nickel and Platinum, which is today known as Ivano Mine. Um, I originally joined the company to do a Solvay-Oxley implementation. I did a short stint in the U.S. Uh, helping out U.S. companies roll out the Solvay's Oxley program. And um, I must say my career at Ivano, it's been very exciting. Um, working in the mining industry, seeing projects going from exploration through to development construction, and today we're a year away from first production at Kamau Kakula, our project uh, in the DRC. Um, if I have to flag some of the exciting uh, projects I've worked on, it was probably listing the company in 2012 on the Toronto Stock Exchange, um, doing our black economic empowerment transaction for our uh, platinum project here in Mokofani. Um, we've, we've done a lot of community development work. Um, we've done a lot of trend setting in terms of, of projects that we've rolled out and we've really tried to approach mining in a different way compared to what the industry was known for a couple of years back with a large focus on ESG. Um, the other thing that I would like to point out is the uh, exposure we've had to different cultures, different partners. At our Plattwick project, we work with Itosho and Jokmek, a Japanese partner. Um, at our Kamau project, we work with Chinese partners and Congolese partners through government. And at our Kopushi project, we work with Jekamine. So it's really been um, quite a diversified role over the years, working on these different assignments and building partnerships. At an Ivano Mines level, we've also had a major investment made by City, uh, CITIC, uh, a large uh, Chinese conglomerate. And um, being part of the team that built these partnerships, uh, fostered these investments, um, has been really exciting. Perfect, Mana. Thank you. Now, as a woman in a leadership position, how are you using this position to drive transformation for women in mining? I think the industry will remain naturally appealing to men, albeit that some of the end products will always be appealing to women. Diamonds are a gold's best strength, after all. <laughs> uh, but on a more serious note, I think seeing leadership, uh, senior women in um, leadership positions across um, companies like we've seen in Anglo, um, with Ivano, um, aspires, uh, inspires young girls um, to see that it is an industry in which they can develop and excel and ultimately uh, reach the top of the chain. Um, the industry itself um, is also changing. It's no longer just about the technical aspects of a project. Uh, we focus a lot on environmental, social, governance issues. Um, I, I myself spent a considerable amount of time on these issues. Um, 
But I think we as management are responsible to set targets for ourselves. And just as we set targets for employment equity, we should also keep an eye on gender equality uh, and keeping the business imperative of the best person for the job. Um, but it's a, you know, I think it also depends on sort of what type of mining you do. At Ivanhoe, uh, we are fortunate that our ore bodies are um, quite white and we are amenable to mechanized mining. Um, so in, in, in this instance, you know, recruiting women to work underground is a much easier task because it's, well, it's a well-known fact that women are, are better drivers than men. Um, but unfortunately, there's also cultural considerations in a, in a lot of the uh, countries we operate in. It's, it's um, uh, legislated that women's not allowed to do underground jobs. And I think it's, it's working with government, uh, educating communities around the stigma uh, around mining and, and chipping away at the block. And as Pat said, it's not something that happens overnight. Um, I think the industry will progress and become more appealing to women over time. Mana, would you say that the way in which women are perceived in the mining industry and the acceptance of women into the mining industry has changed since you began your career in mining? I can definitely say so. I mean, for me, I've never felt that there was a glass ceiling in the industry. Um, it's always been open to transformation. I also think just uh, operating in South Africa, people need to adapt to change. Um, and there is a big drive for women to become involved in all aspects of the business. Um, I think we're going to see a big talent pool coming through. I've, I myself have seen a lot of uh, young professional women specializing in metallurgy and mining engineering, which is not something that we've seen in the past. So I, I'm, I definitely can see the winds of change blowing. I'd like to hear from both of you now about female empowerment initiatives that Avano Mines is involved in. Mana, let's start with you. So we have a number of female initiatives, um, especially when we look at our local economic development initiatives that we embark on at, at both our projects in South Africa as well as in the DRC. Um, what we do is we create companies for, um, for, for different um, requirements that the mine may have. So we've, we've started a brick-making facility in the Congo, as an example, and uh, we started a co-op. And we try and empower as many women as possible to be the owners and workers in these co-ops, just because typically in the DRC, for instance, women aren't really uh, in, that interested in mining. The ancillary services are much more appealing to them. Uh, we've also got a few farming initiatives. Uh, we've got a, a, a chicken farm, uh, egg-laying um, uh, initiative where our camp in the DRC directly purchased from these co-ops, and those are all female-owned. And then Patricia is actually the person who should be talking here, but we started a Her For Us campaign, where we have female representatives across the group assisting employees in having regular communication around some of the initiatives they would like to see the company embark on, and also doing climate surveys across the organization to ensure that we do keep our finger on the pulse and that we do, um, we do see the needs of both our employees and our community. So we've got a female representative across the group 
um, representing different sectors. Patricia, would you like to tell us more about the Her For Us campaign that Mana briefly told us about? So Her For Us is the ambassador in all our uh, different sites, you know, from Flat Reef in Mokopani to Kiko in DMC, the London office, Santin office, Beijing. So we came up with a concept that the colleagues must have one female colleague in that office who will be their ambassador, their point of entry, uh, to go to play, somebody to talk to in terms of initiatives that we want to put out there. And the help for us are people who are easy to communicate with, people who have an ear to listen, people who wouldn't be dismissive and say this is not important. Because remember, that person needs to communicate with from the level of executive right to somebody who's making tea. If we have to roll out a vision of what we stand for, that person should be able to articulate that vision from the executive level right to somebody who's cleaning the company so that everybody understands they have a role to play. So by doing that campaign was really to build the DNA of our organizational development to say, this is who we are. We have definitely moved from the days when we are a small company, we are becoming larger. And as we become large, we don't want to lose the essence of holy feeling. We don't want to be known as employee number 1025. We want to be known by our name. It has to be Marna. It has to be Patricia. It has to be Jasmine. It has to be Joyce. It shouldn't be an issue of, oh, that employee who does that. Your, your work that you do at work doesn't define who you are. But the personality that you are defines your value add in terms of what you do. So the Hair for Us campaign is really a campaign that holds it all together. It holds our foundation, which is our resource perspective. It holds our internal business processes, where we are saying the left hand needs to know what the right hand is doing. It holds the external perspective, where we engage with different stakeholders, whether be it government, whether be it communities, whether be it media or the interest group. It holds the governance perspective, where we talk about the company's financial well-being, where we talk about our strategic objectives, where are we going, where do we think we're going to be in the next five years from now. So the help for us encompass all those elements. And we are saying each and every employee has the right to know about the well-being of the organization, what impacts them, what the future holds, and with the understanding of where we come from. Because to us, history is more important. You need to know where you're going but you also need to take cognizance of where you come from. That is why when you drive a car, you've got the mirror that shows you behind so that you don't forget as you're heading forward what is behind you. So the Hair for Us campaign is really about organizational development and rebuilding the DNA of the organization, but it's led by women. In my language, in Sesotho, they say, Mosadi loosely translated, a woman holds the part of the knife that is sharp. So the Hair for Us campaign is all about that. We are holding the sharp side of the knife. Patricia, in your role as Executive Vice President for Sustainability and Special Projects, relationship building and maintenance forms a critical part of what you do. Can you tell us more about what it is that you do in your role and whether being a female in this role has presented any opportunities or challenges? Definitely. I think I, 
it's, it's both well. It's both challenging and sometimes you go home and you ask yourself, really, did I say that? <laughs> it's quite a very diverse role and I am loving it. I tend to deal with mostly external stakeholders. I attend the annual general assembly of the UN that normally happens in New York once a year in September, but there's a build-up that goes with that. It doesn't just happen in September. So there are a lot of meetings that I get to engage in. I'm going to paint the world in which a special project and sustainability operates. We start here at home in terms of government relations. We deal with a lot of business in terms of governing and shaping the policies of the government and giving our input. So this is really in the landscape in which we operate, the provincial government in Limpopo, the national government. Then we take further to SADC. We sit on the chapter where Business Forum meets on a fortnightly where we talk about our role as business, how can we contribute uh, to the development of uh, southern developing countries. And it's very challenging because this is where you meet your peers in different countries and their perspective. And it's such enriching engagement because sometimes we miss hearing what other countries are doing. I know that as South Africans, most of the time we feel like we are leading in Africa, but in reality, I don't think so. I think all African countries have their own strengths and their own weaknesses. And if we come as a collective, we are able to learn from each other in terms of our strengths. So SADC plays really a meaningful role in terms of the uh, Southern development perspective. Then we move to another platform, the AU platform. We have what we call the CEO Forum. And the CFO Forum was actually developed in Rwanda, in Kigali, when uh, the president of Rwanda, President Paul Kagame, was still the chairperson of the AU. To say, as much as politicians have their own dialogue, we also need to see the business leaders in Africa having their own dialogue. And there you have, from different industries, mining, petroleum, but what is enriching about that? You are not only sitting with the southern development part of Africa, you are sitting with the west, you are sitting with the east, we are sitting with the north of Africa, and it's people who come together to exchange the benchmarks and to give governments input in terms of what can actually work. How can we take the Africa that used to be a dark continent forward? Because Africa has a lot to give. And I must make an example to say, you know, as much as most of the time we believe that we are behind and we tend to see of the third world, but there is so much intellectual wealth out there because most of these captains of this industry, they studied abroad and they know that there's wealth in terms of minerals in Africa. They can always come back home and add value. But we tend to use our intellectual capital in terms of people uh, remaining in other countries and not wanting to come back home. And the diaspora out there, if they were to come back home and really at value here, I do believe within a short space of time we'll be seeing a different Africa. But I'm encouraged by the young generation, particularly female young generation, who are actually saying, we come back home, we work here at home, and we change the environment in which we grew up, rather than 
being out there and criticizing from the outside to say, but no, Africa is not doing this. So that platform is very powerful and it's very encouraging. And I also deal with institutions like JICA. We have a Japanese shareholding in South Africa uh, by the name of Itoshu. And when we meet with government, and government has to deal with the Japanese, we are always called as Ivan Hormine, particularly in my position where I'm sitting for special project to say what is the input of business in terms of where we are taking the relationship between South Africa and Japan. And we get to be part of the dialogue. We get to be involved. And not only with Japan, but with Canada and also with China. And it's so fulfilling when you sit in those platforms and you see the bigger picture that Ivan mind doesn't exist in isolation. There are other external factors that brings value add to the picture. So I must say it's a very, very interesting profile and I'm really appreciating learning, but most importantly, to work for the company where you are supported to actually embrace the external environment of the bigger picture. Because in other companies, they'll be saying, but Patricia, why would you want to go and be involved in BRICS and be involved in uh, FOCAC or TCAC? What does that have to do with an, our environment? But Ivanhoe has realized that for every business to exist, we need to be an integral part of the external environment because the external influence does influence the business at the end of the day. And my role is of such a nature. In terms of opportunities, it's really great. You get to meet different people. You get, you get to meet the leaders of this continent and get involved in real mind-tricking conversations that you never thought you'd be part of. And to me, that is the fulfilling part. However, it also has its own disadvantages because society expects you to behave in a certain way. And when you start critiquing the thinking and saying, but I don't agree with this, you are looked at, oh, is that woman from South Africa? Why is she so arrogant, you know? So you have to take the good and the bad of it. You want to meet and play with the big guys, you need to have a thick skin because you are going to be criticized and you have to take criticism as it comes. But you cannot shy away from speaking your mind just because what are the people going to think of what you're saying, you know? So I do believe that it is fulfilling it is meaningful and it has to be done and somebody has to do it whether it's a man or a woman is irrelevant patricia your insights onto both sides of the coin in terms of your job were very insightful um so ladies as we near the end of the discussion i just have one question um left for the two of you and i'd like to get both your feedback on it mana starting with you if there was one barrier of entry for women in the mining industry that you could remove, what would this barrier of entry be and why? Um, probably the stigma around mining and, and what it entails. Building and operating a mine is much more than bird digging. It's, it's holistic. It's environmental impact, social impact. That's at the core at what, of what we do. And I think it needs to be better communicated. I think roadshows to schools and universities will go a long way to selling the industry to talented young women. Awesome. Thank you, Mana. And then, Patricia, the same question goes to you. If you could remove one barrier of entry for women in the mining industry, what would it be and why? 
I would say it will start in the household, in the family, where mother, father, kids are having a conversation over dinner and uh, the father saying, oh, you need to be a doctor or you need to be a lawyer or you need to rather be a nurse or a police. Maybe was something that was never spoken about when I was growing up, you know. It was like, it was meant for the elites and this is not your cup of tea and you cannot go into that space. And I think... As I look back, I ask myself, a young woman who's Patricia in 1985 would have wanted to be exposed to different kind of fields. Unfortunately, there's that history that comes with you need to go into a work that pays. Whether you are an artist or whether you are an accountant or whether you are a scientist, we tend to put people in one box. But we tend to forget about the passion that that child has because that passion is what defines that that child when the child grows up what they do mustn't be stressful it shouldn't be you're driving in your car going to work and feeling miserable and saying oh i'm just working for the sake of earning a salary and paying the bills at the end of the day waking up in the morning it should be something that makes you thrive even if you were to be told that the company that you work for is now a Section 21 company. You should still want to work there because it's your passion, it's your call. So to me, it's not about a barrier. It's about a passion. What passion do you have as a young girl out there? Who do you want to be? What is your identity? And let the sky be your limit. Just wish for that. Go for what makes you tick. I don't want a situation where... Somebody's in mining and look back and say, you know, yeah, that career council that came, look at my math marks and say, go and be a mining engineer. But this is actually not me. You have to be wholeheartedly committed so that when you meet the challenges, you know how to navigate them because it's something that you love, something that you, you feel bought to, something that you feel you are paid by doing your own. So that's my message. Thank you for listening. Please remember to subscribe to our weekly podcast, which is available on all popular podcast platforms. Give us a five-star rating and share deep insights with your social network. Also, log on to miningreview.com to access our webinars, videos, industry insights, and the latest mining news. Until next week, goodbye and stay safe.